Hello and welcome to another episode of Schlock Tactics, the movie podcast where we believe badder is better and aim to review the DBFB dystopian dwarves so that you don't have to. My name is Ash and I'm joined once again by Mark. Oh, hi, Mark. Hello. Now, today we are also joined by an extra special guest. But before I get to that, I just want to mention our intro music this week. Uh, it's been provided by uh, another one of our guests. It is a little sample from a song called Dry Land It is a Myth. Uh, and if you want to hear the rest of that song, you have to stay tuned till the end. And we will play the, the song in full for the first time anywhere in the world. So stay tuned for that. But we do have a couple of guests this week. Uh, the first one, you may know him on Instagram as What a Ranker. He is fellow film critic and film blogger, Liam. Hello. Hello, Liam. How Hello. are you? I'm good, thank you. Now, tell us uh, about What a Ranker. What, what is that? So, What a Ranker is our website. We basically review the latest movies, some more modern stuff than you guys do here. Ah. It's also a bit of a, an opinion piece blog, so I have a list of every film I've ever seen in my life. Wow. Ranked from best to worst, and a short description of what I thought about it. We also do music and TV and games, so okay. if you like some opinion-based articles, that's where to go. Now, I think you've told me before, but tell me how many, how many current films you've seen in the last year? Uh, 2019 so far, I'm on 87. Okay. Wow. And last year? <laughs> last year I got to a nice 100. So you've probably seen far more bad films than we have. <laughs> we, we, we only watch four bad. a month. <laughs> <laughs> and we do it deliberately, you don't. Um, yeah, I know when we did our Razzie uh, special, uh, you, you gave us some feedback on that one because those were some, some modern films that you had seen. So yeah, that's your specialty. Modern films, whether they be good or bad, but I'm imagining mostly bad. Bad films that I don't know are bad when I go into them, yeah. I envy you in some ways, but um, I like to, I like to pick films that I've got a good idea are, are bad and cheesy when I go in. Well, we'll we'll come back to you a little bit later and uh, and get some more of your thoughts on contemporary film. But I think we've got some other guests in the studio, Mark. Is that right? Yeah, we also have two members of the band Destroy the Beast, Find the Baby with us. They are Ash and Liam. Oh, that's me. Oh, oh yeah, and me. Hello. Again. Oh, oh, Hello. hi, 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 Mark. <laughs> Thanks, thanks for having us on the show. Yeah, it's really great. Problems, really so. great to be on the show. Um, yeah, can you tell me a bit about the band and, and your roles within the band? Yeah, well, so this is maybe the first time uh, uh, that I'm re revealing my um, secret identity. So for people that don't know, I am also the singer in Destroy the Beast, Find the Baby. We are a pop punk uh, or an easy core band. If you don't know what easy core is, it is pop punk with some heavy little hardcore bits in there as well. So Liam came along and joined late 2015 and uh, helped to complete the first lineup of that uh yeah so i'm the basis of the band as well so you might have seen us interact through our movie ventures but we also know each other through music we released an ep cancel the apocalypse about two years ago now and we've got a new ep dry land is a myth coming out soon so hopefully we have to talk about that today as well well, what date does that come out, though, Liam? It comes out on November the 8th. Oh, thank God for that. Right. <laughs> yeah, so as you may have noticed there, uh, both of our EP titles are movie-related. So we'll come back to that a little bit later in the show. But yeah, back to business. Of course, we are reviewing today two films that uh, have a special place in the hearts of uh, Destroy the Beast, Find the Baby, that being Willow from 1988 and Waterworld from 1995. Last episode that we did do it was uh, part two, uh, the sequel 
to one of our favourite episodes that we've done. It was Game Over Man Part 2. Would you like to continue? <laughs> uh, where we uh, we did Street Fighter, the movie, my favourite bad movie of all time, and Mortal Kombat. So if you want to go back and check those out, you can do so. We love video game movies because they're always bad, and these were no exceptions, so go back and check that out. First of all, we will get into Willow from 1988. I can give you the synopsis that IMDb has. <laughs> a reluctant dwarf must play a critical role in protecting a special baby from an evil queen. <laughs> That's pretty much all it is, right? Yeah. Imagine, you know, Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit, that, that kind of stuff. But much, much sooner than those films. This is 1988 and this is produced by George Lucas. Coming off of, of course, the massive success of the Star Wars franchise. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, how can you top Star Wars? You know, I mean, but when uh, before he actually made Star Wars, he claims to have had this idea of of Willow, the basic concept, and then he met Warwick Davis, who plays Willow on the set of Return of the Jedi, where he played, of course, an Ewok, as do uh, about eighty percent of the little people in this film were Ewoks in Return of the Jedi. So. Ah. Um, but this is also directed by Ron Howard, uh, obviously star of Happy Days and other sort of films. He's going into directing in the 80s, just coming off of the back of Cocoon. But there you go, Ron Howard wanted to direct a fantasy film, and George Lucas already by this point had gone off directing. He actually, I think he only really directed the first Star Wars. He's more of a producer, writer guy anyway. So so he doesn't, uh, he doesn't write this or direct this. He just produces it and has a credit for coming up with the story of, of The Reluctant Dwarf. We get a little sort of um, biblical preamble uh, over the, the opening credits that sort of mentions, uh, you know, one day there will be a, a child born who is going to save the world and destroy the evil king or queen. This is quite sort of Old Testament King Herod sort of uh, Bible mm-hmm. Bible shit. Queen Bav Morda is the, is the evil queen in this film and... Um, just like in the Bible, she decides she's going to kill uh, all the the babies, the newborn babies, particularly female ones, because the prophecy is that a female baby will will uh, bring about her downfall. And a little tr- uh, montage of the uh, uh, of the baby sort of being smuggled out of the castle and uh, traveling across the country, being chased by these weird sort of pig dog sort of things. Just like in the Bible, uh, the baby floats down the river on a little uh, little basket, little bed of reeds. And uh, this eventually brings about the appearance of the reluctant dwarf himself, Willow. So this is Warwick Davis, actually 17 years old at the time. I was going to say, shot. must have been pretty young. The kids are like, can we keep it? Can we keep it? And this brings about the appearance of other dwarves. So you quickly realise that... Um, this is an entire town populated by dwarves. Mm. Uh, actually, the largest casting call in history, 240 dwarves in this film. Wow. One of the prominent dwarves is a guy called Burglecut, and he's a sort of a, a bully, a sort of an authority figure. Now, what often happens when you get fantasy films or films that are set in medieval-type times is that you'll get a lot of characters with a sort of similar accent to yours, Liam, to suggest that they live in a fantasy world. <laughs> Which just suggest they're all farmers, basically. Yeah. <laughs> How do you feel? Do you feel you're being targeted? Or well, to be honest, I didn't notice it, so clearly it worked to uh, draw me into the story. I just thought he was a nice. <laughs> it felt like nice being at home. Chap. Really. <laughs> <laughs> do you get pushed around by a short, a short fat man? <laughs> well, I wouldn't call my dad that, but yeah. <laughs> if you're listening, Mr. Brown, um, 
Were you in Willow? Let us know. And as always the case in these films, you get a little festival scene with lots of people playing slightly medieval-looking lutes and banging drums and stuff like that. Fire-breathing, tug-of-war, and an interesting sequence which involves the men doing little do si do round we go with women who had bags on their head. <laughs> What's that about? I don't know. Sl- slightly sinister turn there. Uh, the pig dogs attack soon enough um, and start ripping apart the village and the festival is just complete chaos um, and then one of the, the dwarves said they were looking for a baby so they, uh, Willow and his, and his wife have to go to the village council to see what they want to do about it and really quickly in here I don't expect anyone to have noticed but you get Kenny Baker who was the man inside R2-D2 in Star Wars. There's no way I could have noticed <laughs> yeah. that. I recognised his face, obviously. <laughs> you had to look really closely, obviously. He's only about two foot tall. And he was uh, amongst a, a group of larger dwarves. But um, he gets a little cameo here, and the, the guy says, someone must take the baby far away. And he says, who do that? <laughs> and that's, that's his contribution. Thanks, Kenny. Now, we get a little troop then of dwarves that are going to accompany Willow on his quest. So they all set off on an adventure and obviously we cut back and forth here uh, to the baddies to see what they're up to. Um, you get some signature um, George Lucas wipes. So the screen will wipe from left to right or diagonal down to diagonal, yeah. sometimes like a cartoon circle. It's stuff. very noticeable. I think it's probably more noticeable now than it was then because it was standard then, I guess. But Kind of, <laughs> in like family films of the 80s, maybe yeah. even some Spielberg movies. Definitely Star Wars. Yeah. We flash back here again to see the Queen Bav Morda character, but also a character called General Kale and uh, Sorsha, who is the sort of um, flame-haired, beautiful daughter of the evil sorcerer, but she's a bit of a badass. And we only have one instruction for General Kale, and that is find the baby. Hmm. Interesting. So we carry on with the, uh, the adventuring. We get quite an epic score by James Horner as well, which is quite cool. And Willow and his fellow dwarves reach the crossroads, which is where they've been instructed to go with the baby. Uh, we get quite a lot of what I believe are called gibbets. That's the name for those medieval cages that hang from chains oh, yeah. that you often see skeletons in. And in one of these gibbets, we find Val Kilmer returning yes. to the show. We reviewed him, of course, in The Island of Dr. Moreau. Mm. In the archives, in our, in our HG Wells specials, you can check that out. Coming off of Top Gun two years earlier, he's maybe at the height of his powers. He plays a character called Mad Martigan. Uh, they all get into a big argument about, well, why don't we just leave the baby with him? He's like, well, he looks like a bit of a dodgy sort of bandit sort of guy. Well, he threatens uh, Warwick Davis's character straight away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's like, let me out of here, you peck. Before they decide what to do, the army marches through, and we're led to believe these are the good guys, including uh, Mad Martigan's good friend, Eric, who is this sort of blonde Viking-looking guy. Eventually, Mad Martigan convinces Willow to give them the baby, and then the dwarves go on their way. But then no sooner have they done this than they get attacked by very small people. It's interesting, a film where the, your perspective is of from dwarves, and they think that humans are giants. There are also creatures that are smaller than dwarves, which are called brownies. And here are these two characters, which I don't know about you guys, but I found them insufferable. Yeah. <laughs> these tiny little, like, wise guy. They're doing, like, Mexican 
accents. What what did you guys think of these well, brownie characters? My notes started thinning out once these uh, <laughs> once these characters were introduced. I sort of there was a little bit too much fantasy for me around this time. I was just like, oh, this is mm. getting a bit. Oh, it, you did have fairies, just, and yeah. this is really drivelly, and like, yeah, I didn't care <laughs> care much for these little twats. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Liam. <laughs> it just got really confusing at this point because they kept doing close-ups of these tiny guys, so they seemed full full size on screen. Hmm. I was just constantly confused by like, what size everyone was or meant to be. That's yeah. a good point. Yeah, because <laughs> these are normal size humans that are being shot in such a way where there'll be a massive um, tree stump in the foreground, yeah. and then there'll be. I mean, they have. I mean, these were actually considered incredibly cutting edge effects in 1988. This is just on the cusp of CGI, but this is uh, industrial light and magic had created this um, morphing technology, which would become in a few years, the stuff they used in Terminator 2 and, and the Abyss and stuff like that. So this is actually possibly the first ever instance of, of computer generated or digitally manipulated effects. So mm. it cool. doesn't actually look great, but it's important. Yeah. However, these little pricks can fuck off. <laughs> they are really <laughs> annoying. Anytime they speak, I'm just like, change the yeah. channel you know yeah i can't which i can't do <laughs> uh, i should mention this film is another one of uh, i feel like i say this every week but this once again forms a part of my uh, my vhs collection <laughs> the young the young ashes uh, vhs collection which i wish i had a picture somewhere off to know what was what but this was in there it's sort of a gulliver's travels bit where they're all tied up on the ground and they're all trying to get away and they stole the baby like you said, the fantasy elements, the cliches here just get a bit, a bit out of hand. There's yeah. like a fairy that starts floating through the woods and gives all the exposition. You must go to an enchanted island and find a sorceress. And uh, blah, 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 blah. I'm not a big fan of fantasy films. Really. I, start to, I was trying not to zone out during this sort of middle phase here. So. I mean, I, I, you know, I loved this film when I was a kid, but I didn't know any better. Now I'm a grown-up, I hate fantasy. <laughs> but yeah, lots of cliches, lots of exposition. Uh, this fairy is basically the quest giver that says, you know, would you like to accept this mission? Go to this island. It is, it is Skyrim, but not as fun. So Willow, the baby, and these two weird Mexican pygmies go on their way. There's this weird subplot, which I also hate throughout, which is one of these little brownies will have um, fairy dust and it will be blown in someone's face and it's love potions so the person that gets the dust in their face will fall in love with the first thing they see hmm. the first instance this is the brownie falling in love with a cat and then it comes into play a bit later it feels again a bit madcap you know yeah. a bit zany but these films combined are four hours and 20 minutes we figured that out if there's any more reason for you to just listen to this show and not watch the films then then that's it we find Val Kilmer in drag uh, canoodling with a, a local wench mm-hmm. um but the uh, the wench's husband is on his way home so uh, he dresses up as a woman brian blessed type character comes <laughs> in the door where is he where is he i don't know what you mean this is cousin hilda and then this guy gives his quite good performance so he's like oh hello oh cousin hilda Ooh. do you want to breed <laughs> which is an epic chat up line val kilmer doesn't want to breed with him at least mm-hmm. Soldiers nearly discover the baby, along with Saoirse, but um, then the husband sort of kicks off when when Val Kilmer is revealed to not be a woman. So they manage to escape on a cart, and this, this massive guy again is just shouting, Not a woman! 
Not a woman! They should have got Brian Blessed for this. But yeah. Quite a good sequence here, I think, in terms of action. I was just really pleased to see some, some action. <laughs> um, there was like a cart. Uh, instead of a car chase, it was like a cart chase. <laughs> it was like a horse-drawn cart, and there was uh, baddies on carts, and they were trying to sword fight and... Uh, and all that sort of stuff and a particularly fun bit where Val Kilmer swings a mason chain over his head a lot more adventuring they reach the sort of shoreline where uh, Willow has to uh, row a boat out to this island where he's meant to find uh, this sorceress character called Finn Razel when he finds her she is a small animal I initially thought it was a squirrel I have looked this up it is a possum and this, this animal changes throughout the film but Initially, it is a, a possum. I was hoping it was a wombat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it looked it looked um, marsupial-esque, yeah. didn't it? Yeah, it's a possum. You will need to turn her into a human at some point, but there's no time for that because um, Sorsha, Queen's daughter again, captures them all. While in captivity, Willow is able to transform uh, Razelle into a crow and, and, and so on. Now, interestingly, the love potion here comes into play again, but it makes Mad Martigan fall in love with Saoirse. But what's more interesting here is that this actress that plays Saoirse is Joanne Wally, and she would soon become Joanne Wally Kilmer, because she would marry Val Kilmer oh. a year after meeting him on this set, and she would divorce him in 1995 but she wouldn't do it to his face she would file the papers behind his back allow news uh, networks to get a hold of it and read it out on television where Val Kilmer would discover he was being divorced by his wife on the news while filming The Island of Dr Moreau wow full circle <laughs> that is brutal <laughs> it is brutal that's the only time I've ever felt bad for Val Kilmer um, so if you remember uh, when we reviewed The Island of Dr Moreau we talked about Val Kilmer looking like he was off his fucking face the entire time that's why because mm. he just uh, he just found out he was being divorced from afar yeah. <laughs> and so I divorce you from afar <laughs> um, so there you go so the love potion must have worked because they ended up marrying each other there's a bit of shield surfing here, Breath of the Wild style, uh, <laughs> down the mountain, down the snowy mountain. Also kind of remind me of The Living Daylights, the Bond film, where they do that on a sort of uh, cello case. Oh, yeah. That should come out a year before this film. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Just saying. There's a ludicrous bit, which I really don't understand the decision, but Val Kilmer falls off the shield and starts doing a roly-poly. And by the <laughs> yeah. time he gets to the bottom of the mountain, he's encased in about five-foot of snow and just thuds into the cabin at the bottom. This was like Looney Tunes yeah. cartoon. This was ridiculous. Oh, he actually ends up taking Sasha uh, hostage. There's a lot of just kidnapping each other in this film. Yeah. You kidnap the baby. Okay, and five minutes later, well, I'll kidnap you. Come with me. And then, okay, well, in ten minutes, so you're gonna, I'm going to kidnap you again. It's like, <laughs> can everyone stop getting kidnapped? <laughs> yeah. um, but it is Sasha's turn to be kidnapped by... Um, Mad Martigan. They go to a place, I think it was called Tierras Lee or something like that. Sort of typical fantasy nonsense name. Um, there's lots of like petrified people there, all encased in sort of translucent rocks and stuff like that. He steps in troll shit. Willow says, I hate trolls. Funnily enough, when you do see what the trolls look like, I think they look quite good. They look like sort of rabid monkeys. But in the face, they also look quite a lot like the leprechaun that Warwick Davis would eventually morph into uh, 
uh, further down the line. So foreshadowing. <laughs> uh, Mad Martigan also finds like a, a, a suit of armor and some swords and shit. Um, Razel has turned into a goat again. This is every ten minutes we have to turn, the, change the animal to show off this um, morphing technology. <laughs> but you've never seen a crow turn into a goat before. <laughs> I think the best part of the film, this scene, certainly the best effects. One of these trolls is transformed into. It's kind of hard to describe. It's a gigantic two-headed monster. Uh, I'm not sure how they've achieved this, if it's stop motion or it's like visual manipulation. It's very, I think it's very impressive even for 1988. It's a sort of two-headed, they look like dicks in a way, <laughs> or like eels, something like that, you yeah. know. A two-headed monster which can sort of breathe fire and looks a bit like the Rancor from uh, Return of the Jedi. I think they're still on that sort of um, era of, of what George Lucas thinks looks cool and scary. Mm-hmm. But I think this does look pretty cool as a monster what did you guys think of this massive two-headed monster i think obviously looking back on it now it it stands out so much because of just how cgi is now it's just photorealistic but it's quite impressive how they got like characters to jump on its back and things like that and yeah. it, it looked quite realistic for the time period it's sort of uh, all of these sort of digital things they all look good but they all just look a bit like they've got an Instagram filter on them. It's a bit plastic. <laughs> yeah, like a bit um, rear projected, one of those sorts of things. Yeah. And if you look really closely, you mentioned people jumping on it. There is a bit where Val Kilmer jumps on it. And if you look really, really closely, you can see that it switches to a little, a tiny little action man, Val Kilmer, um, <laughs> swaying on the back of it. It's very well blended, but I look for these sorts of things. <laughs> I think the peak of the effects in this film, would you say? Yeah, probably looks better than some of the stuff that's preceded it in this yeah. film. So, apart from the, pra- I mean, the practical stuff looks all right, like yeah. the trolls and stuff. But whenever they try and do these sort of uh, fairies and shit like that, it looks all very. Mm-hmm. Someone's drawn it on with a felt tip. So we get General Kale and the army here um, siege this castle, and as they ride in, we hear General Kale give the order. So there it is. Destroy the beast, find the baby. <laughs> so why are you called Destroy the Beast, Find the Baby? <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked, Mark. I can't really explain why the band is called Destroy the Beast, Find the Baby. Obviously, I saw this film a lot as a kid, and it was a phrase that stuck in my head for a long, long time. It, maybe it's the way that the guy delivers it, which is his his time to shine in the film. He doesn't do anything else memorable, vocally or, or otherwise. He's got a mask on most of the time. But um, I always remembered this phrase from when I was a kid and even when I was a teenager like me and my friends used to say it just every now and then it was like a little earworm that got into our our common parlance for some reason we'd just mm. everything would be quiet and someone would just go Destroy the beast, find the baby. <laughs> it, like if we were going to go somewhere and do something, like, right, let's, should we go and do the shopping? Yeah, destroy the beast, find the baby. <laughs> so it, it kind of came up a little bit when, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, and then it kind of went away. And then maybe t- 2014, I think I, I, I made a post, which I was later reminded of by that, that horrible app, which reminds you of your past uh, social media posts. <laughs> Time Hop, is it? Yeah, yeah, that one. I was later reminded by Time Hop that one year before we formed the band, I, I put a post out that said, one day I will form a band called Destroy the Beast, Find the Baby. Ah, uh, yeah. I remember you sharing yeah. that once you'd made the band. And I did. And when we formed when we formed the band, we had a, a very short list of names. Uh, I remember this, the, the, the runner-up was Aim Low, Achieve More. <laughs> Which I still think is quite good, but it's a little bit of cliched pop punk, I think. Uh, but Destroy the Beast, Find the Baby, um, we got some early 
test audiences reactions to <laughs> yeah. that we said which of these names do you think is good and they were like what was that one again destroy the beast find the baby what is that <laughs> <laughs> and we still get that to this day don't we people say oh absolutely what, so what's the name of your band and i think sometimes we sort of like destroy the beast find the baby but uh, most of the time i'm pretty proud of it how but, did you uh, feel about joining a band called destroy the yeah, beast find the baby I mean, you've never told me what you think of the name well obviously at the start it was I had no idea where the reference was from, so it was very confusing. <laughs> it took a long time. But when you Googled it right at the start before we had anything online, mm. you could easily find out where it's from, so I got the reference pretty soon. What about now? What happens now when you well, Google it? Well, luckily now, because the name is so unusual, it passes the Google test, which is if you mm. type in a band's name on Google and they don't come up on the first page, it's not a very good name. I'm going to do it live on the air now. It's predicting Destroy the Beast, Find the Baby musical artist. I'm going to click that. Destroy the Beast, Find the Baby into Google. So we've got some pictures of us. We have Destroy the Beast, Find the Baby musical artist. We have our bio and a link to our Spotify. We have our music videos coming up as video. Our Twitter, our Bandcamp, some gig posters. Do you know what? Fucking Willow doesn't make the front page of Google. <laughs> we do. So there you go. Officially, we've made it because we are more famous than this film. <laughs> you heard it here first. So there you go. At long last, people have been asking us for years why are you called that. We have now revealed. So this whole this whole um, siege scene is is pretty pretty over the top. Val Kilmer um, catapults himself. He regroups with Eric's army to attack. It, it goes a bit mad here. For some reason, Queen Bavmada casts a spell which turns all of the good guys into pigs. And I, I read on the trivia for this that um, obviously once they'd all transformed into pigs, they were real pigs in a field. But the pigs kept trying to fuck each other. So they kept having to pour buckets of water on them to sort them out. <laughs> That's a cracking bit of trivia. <laughs> I don't know if it's true, but I hope so. So there's more of this bloody animal morphing. So Razel turns into an ostrich, a peacock, a tortoise, a tiger... And finally settles on a nude old woman. <laughs> I mean, that's what you would expect a sorceress to look like. I think it's a bit of a letdown. So they set a trap. They, they go into this field and it's just Willow and the sorceress. And like, well, we've just come to uh, to chat, you know. And then once they open the gates, all of the, the good guy army pop up from under really obvious blankets that are on the ground. Like lumpy blankets that are all around the castle. You know, no one's noticed this. There's a big epic final battle. Uh, mother and daughter, the queen and, and Sorcia have a bit of a scrap. The good sorceress and the bad sorceress do all its sort of lightning out of the hands sort of bullshit. Willow finally gets to use his magic acorn. That's not his testicle, that is, uh, that is a, a genuine thing. And he does his disappearing pig act, he calls it, uh, makes the sorceress disappear. So that's it really, as you'd expect then. Uh, he, he goes back to his little uh, dwarf village at the end and Oh, and now he's a hero where he was a bit of a fuck up at the beginning of the film. Now he's the hero that saved the world from the evil sorceress, blah, blah, blah. And that is it. Willow from 1988. Firstly, Mark, your thoughts on this movie? Yeah, I quite enjoyed it. I think it's good to see uh, work back in action. Pretty, pretty young. <laughs> Playing a good guy this time. Yeah. And uh, Val. Um, <laughs> as I mentioned earlier, when it got towards the sort of main middly part of the film i was the fantasy elements were getting a bit too 
much a bit too cheesy mm. and i was sort of like oh this is just a bit drivelly but yeah it was um it's pretty entertaining it came together at the end it's that kind of fantasy that just doesn't really appeal to me it was good to watch it as a bad movie and i did enjoy doing it for this but like i wouldn't derive any genuine enjoyment from sight (laughs) like oh no i don't don't recommend genuine (laughs) enjoyment who wants that from anything that has this much fantasy in it or this type of fantasy in it if you know what i mean lucas fantasy for kids yeah yeah liam you finally have watched willow the origin of our band's name finally what what did you think of the movie itself i generally didn't think it was as bad as i expected when i went into it i think you could really tell that it came from george lucas's brain right so the story like was quite blissfully simple like a star wars movie yeah and then some of the action like the one you mentioned where val kilmer's in a dress on the back of a cart it felt very Indiana Jones. Like I could see yeah, yeah. his brain working. So it was quite cool to see that. But there was just about 45 minutes in the middle where absolutely <laughs> nothing happens. And I was wondering same, when it was going to finish. Yeah, same 45 minutes that Mark <laughs> yeah. uh, struggled through probably. I, I didn't manage to make any notes because nothing was really <laughs> happening. <laughs> see Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, I think we can all agree this film doesn't need to be two hours long or yeah. over two hours long. There yeah. was a lot of faffing about, a lot of dicking about with fairies and that sort of thing. It was made on a budget of 35 million and did gross domestically 57 million, so it was it was a success. It was profitable, not to the level that George Lucas wanted it to be, because obviously he just made Star Wars. He was <laughs> he had high hopes, you know, which could never be fulfilled. I don't think fantasy is as marketable as uh, as what Star Wars is either. No. But then, you know, before Star Wars, you know, people said that sci-fi could never be a blockbuster. You know, it was so he, he was trying to do for the fantasy genre what he'd already done for the sci-fi genre, and it didn't work quite in the same way. Um, yeah, far too long. I mean, I'm I'm really not a fan of fantasy, as I say um, nowadays. But as a kid, obviously, I thought this was pretty cool. But there you go. But it was it was a success. Didn't launch the fran- a franchise that Luke George Lucas was hoping for. Apparently, there is a TV show in development. Warwick Davis is happy to come back. Obviously, um, Ron Howard is happy to direct again. George Lucas has got plenty of money after selling his soul to Disney. So, so there you go. Yeah, Willow. I think maybe for um, fantasy purists mm. or people that want cheesy eighties fantasy. Okay, so the next film we are going to talk about is Waterworld from 1995, the most expensive movie ever made at that time. <laughs> would be would be trumped by Titanic two years later for similar reasons. But Waterworld, yes, an, a massively expensive film. It was made on a budget of $175 million. Whoa. When marketing is included, $215 million. <laughs> But it did take $264 million worldwide, so it did still make a profit. Uh, although, critically, like Willow, it didn't didn't get glowing reviews or terrible reviews, just, yeah, so it's all right. You want more than that for $175 million, yeah. I would have thought, you know. <laughs> this is Kevin Costner at the height of his powers, height of his fame. He'd done Prince of Thieves, The Untouchables, coming off a string of quite acclaimed and and successful films so he produces this one himself and he gets his friend kevin reynolds to direct it i don't know who that is at all never heard his name before this (laughs) film but that's the guy who's directing it as you can probably guess waterworld is set in a world where everything is water as the sort of preamble mentions um it's quite a cool bit at the beginning where the you know the universal logo where it's the globe uh, you end up zooming into it from the logo 
and the yeah. the land masses dissolve before your eyes and then you sort of go into the I didn't the think film. the film had started yet. I thought we were, <laughs> <laughs> thought we were still going through the logos. <laughs> Those fucking logos great. Yeah. An interesting uh, an interesting variation on what some people do with the universal logo, I think. They seem, make it seem like it's really far in the future. Wow. Well, in 1995, people were still chuckling and laughing about global yeah. warming, as we've mentioned in... Uh, a Biodome came out around this time as well. Yeah. The whole premise of that film is having a big laugh at um, eco... Eco warriors and hippies like mm. ha, global warming. What, what are you on about? You yeah. know, and this film isn't it isn't making fun of of that, but it is it is seeing it as something very far in the future. Yeah, and I think I read somewhere this is meant to be set in two thousand five hundred. Not that far away, a <laughs> couple of years. So we get a quite a short preamble actually. I thought he was going to go on a much more of a speech about what's happened here, but it was like so it's the future. There's water everywhere. Mm, yeah. Get on with it. <laughs> okay. From this, we segue into a pissing Kevin Costner. That's not my opinion of his performance. <laughs> he is pissing into a bottle, which he then pours into some sort of bong-like contraption, <laughs> pulls a few wheels, and it comes into another cup, and then he drinks it. So, in a world where everyone drinks their own piss, <laughs> that's the future we're heading for. Costner plays a character simply called The Mariner. He sails this sort of rusty-looking catamaran. You get this, um, I think, a really great score in this film as well. It's all, we mentioned, it sounded a bit like Turok, sort of tribal. You feel like they may be hitting bits of metal at the same time to suggest uh, post-apocalypticness. So he bumps into another drifter on another boat who's wearing a colander on his head because it's the future. The drifter tells him to go east because there's a settlement there and that will help him on his way. And then he realises that Bugger's nicked his, nicked his limes. He's got a little lime tree on his boat and he's nicked them when he's been diving diving under the water. You see Kevin Costner dive underwater a lot, but you're not sure why. And uh, it's revealed then the baddies of this film, the goons, are people called smokers, who are people that ride jet skis and smoke fags a lot. Presumably everyone else is non-smokers. <laughs> There's a lot of unnecessary swinging in this film. <laughs> if someone wants to go from one end of a boat to the other, they will go to great lengths to find the correct rope, get the necessary tension, and then swing all the way across when they could have been there by now. You yeah. know, Lots of pirate sort of um, action. And it's revealed that actually he's got massive sails concealed in his boat, and his boat's actually in better... Nick than it than it looks like. So he does end up uh, uh, heading to this settlement. Now this is your first glimpse at what most of this film's budget went on. These quite amazing sets. I think these sets are pretty great. Yeah, they were very impressive. Just like a little city here. I mean, you get the 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 set for the baddies as well later. But this is your first taste. And apparently they didn't really do any research here. I mean, the reason why this film is so expensive is because it was all filmed in a large artificial sea basically like titanic they'd cordoned off an area of the ocean to film their movie in. and it was off the coast of hawaii and nobody had done any research into the weather um so this set this elaborate really expensive set was destroyed at least twice by a hurricane and also they would shoot a scene and then wind would pick up and everything would move slightly <laughs> so someone would have to go and push push little things back into place but yeah what what did you guys think of of the sets in this film particularly your first glimpse of it here i think it was really good world building mm. like it, it gave a great impression that you were 
somewhere completely different to what you're used to. Yeah. So it's quite cool to see like an entire functioning world that looks completely different to what we know here. Yeah, I did feel like even though this isn't like a great film, I did feel like I was kind of in the set of what you know. In did you feel you were seeing a hundred and seventy-five million dollars? <laughs> yeah, I felt like, <laughs> especially. Well, well, we'll get onto the action as well. Yeah, but, well, yeah, um, that's another thing. Like, yeah. I felt like they really put a lot of effort yeah. into it, and um, yeah, it really sucked you and made you feel like. Even though were, it is Mad yeah. Max at sea, yeah, that's what this film is. <laughs> the sets are better in this, I think, than Mad Max. Mm. Mad Max is a lot of desert nothing um, there <laughs> yeah some of the Mad Max films there's little settlements like this as well but I think these were as good if not better than that particularly the fact that they were all constructed at sea mm. uh, or, or constructed and then taken to sea and so they all had to just float around and they had like um, sections of this settlement where there were like trees and sections where there was this weird like yellow goop um, which we see there were like sh- hammerhead sharks that were being winched out of the water so it was quite it felt quite alive i thought yeah. for for a constructed very fake town uh, i did like it and someone is having a funeral as he as he waltzes in and they say and we will recycle him and they drop the person into the yellow mud so the mariner comes in basically to trade he brings in dirt which we realize is like the most precious commodity now in the world is is dirt and soil and the guy's like Licking it on his tongue. Like, Ooh, sure, dirt. Good dirt this yeah. is, yeah. Fucking great. Then we get our first glimpse of the Enola character, which is this young girl that has tattoos on her back that are said to lead to dry land. And we get some of the characters discussing this. Uh, a goon here with lustrous uh, ginger hair, who is uh, a bit of a henchman in this film. He's he's told that the, the back tattoos will lead to dry land. However... Dry land's a myth. Yes, Dryland is a myth. If you didn't know by now, the characters in this film will will tell you repeatedly that Dryland is a myth. So I hear that that is the title of your upcoming EP mm-hmm. and uh, the song that we will be hearing at the end of the show. That's right. Uh, can you tell me more about that? Well, yes, we, we called it Dryland is a myth. Um, again, this is something that I'm to blame for that has stuck in my head for years. So Dryland as a Myth is a Waterworld quote, and when we were writing this EP, we were, um, for some reason, I just got stuck on nautical themes. Mm. Every song had to be related to, to the water and stuff like that. So we ended up writing, uh, early on, I wrote the song called Dryland as a Myth, which we'll be playing at the end of the show. So stay tuned for, for that world exclusive. Kind of the song is is like an anti-pop punk song, because as Liam will, will also tell you, there's this incredible cliche in pop punk of writing songs about your hometown, good or bad. Usually, I hate I hate this town, something like that. That is the right? cliche, yeah. yeah. Um, so I wanted to write a song about what, what if you don't really have a hometown or you've moved around so much that you're not sure where your hometown is anymore. How, how could you ever write a cliche pop punk song about loving it or hating it? I felt a... An empathy with the characters in Waterworld. Uh. Liam said earlier, Cancel the Apocalypse was the title of our last EP, and that's a quote from Pacific Rim. I like to put uh, movie quotes in there, even if they don't really relate to the, the to the nature of the song, to the lyrics of the song, but this one does. I wrote this song, I imagined I was Kevin Costner floating from Wales to England <laughs> up the Bristol Channel. You know. Did you know what this uh, 
story behind the lyrics or are you just learning this now <laughs> no so i think the lyrics are very clear throughout the entire ep <laughs> they all fit a nice theme so it all kind of stemmed from this song and possibly just from this quote yeah it's all of the nautical themes and all of the artwork and videos that we've done it's, it's all fit nicely into this five song story kind of and uh, and that song also starts and ends with a bass line so, it does. I get to show um, off a little bit. So as, as you might have heard at the beginning of the show here, you heard Liam's skills uh, on the bass there, and you'll hear them a bit more again later. So there you go, Dryland is a Myth. November 8th, <laughs> Destroy the Beast, Find the Baby. That's where the name of the EP comes from. But back to the film. So we are here in this little settlement. People are talking about this girl, and the tattoos on her back are going to lead you to dry land. Everybody's quite interested in this. Kevin Costner has done his business. He wants to leave. But as he's leaving he gets confronted by a group of the villagers who, quote, we want your seed. He's like, pardon? <laughs> uh, and they present their, their young daughter and they say, look, we just want your seed. You know, we don't, you don't have to stay. <laughs> um, and they say that they want his seed because, you know, it's not good um, for us to uh, keep it all within the community or something <laughs> like that, he says. He, uh, a bunch of these really goofy looking villagers are like we need your seed we can't keep fucking each other basically <laughs> um, however they change their mind when somebody discovers after uh, pulling back the hair on the back of his neck that he has gills behind his ears to which one of the old villagers just shouts really loudly he's a mutant <laughs> and then everyone starts going ah it is revealed that the reason why Kevin Costner is uh, who he is here is because he has gills and he can breathe underwater and dive dive down to uh, to get things. So the, the locals are very hostile here. It's once again, some kind of racist undertones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and as we were saying, you know, why was that a bad thing? If the world is full of water, do you, do you, why don't you want gills? And how has he got the gills? An unanswered question of Waterworld, but but Kevin Costner is, seems to be the only guy with gills here, so so he's in, of interest to people. So they put him in a little cage, much like Val Kilmer in, in Willow. They decide that they are going to recycle him. So again, they, they put him in a cage and they start to submerge him into this sort of yellowy water, mud. But no, they're no sooner are they about to uh, recycle him. But the smokers arrive um, on their boats and their jet skis, and this is... I think for me the best scene in the film, the most action-packed scene. They they peak quite early. This is about twenty-five minutes into the film, and this action sequence is off the charts. It's yeah. insane. <laughs> Boats, jet skis, like dual machine guns, at stuff like anti-aircraft guns. They're like mini guns or something. Yeah, like. and there's like ramp set up so that the the jet skis can uh, can fly into the into the settlement there are people even fucking water skiing into the settlement and here we are introduced to uh, our villain of the film returning to the show for a record third time <laughs> the legendary dennis hopper we covered his work in the super mario brothers movie mm -hmm. we covered his work in the texas chainsaw massacre too mm -hmm. so here he returns dennis hopper by all accounts quite a good actor Seems to be just in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> but um, I love his character in this. <laughs> but if there's anything I do love in a film, it is Dennis Hopper playing a villain. Yeah. Because I don't think 
Mario Brothers Texas Chainsaw 2 or this film would be anywhere near as enjoyable without him doing his panto villain anger issues <laughs> yeah just very um charming and engrossing for a villain i think what what did you guys think of dennis hopper's term as, as villain here have you seen him in anything else liam i must have but not to this yeah this kind of extreme you've not covered him as much as me and Mark <laughs> have, <laughs> just just in the last year it just he felt so genuine it just all felt kind of ad-libbed and like he was an actual human just reacting where everything else in the film felt very staged and a bit stale yeah he was the only character who felt like genuinely real <laughs> he's meant to be the villain <laughs> yeah i right. don't know i don't know about you guys but i i thought kevin costner's character was the asshole mm. and dennis hopper's character was much more likable what, what do you think mark compared to dennis hopper's role in say blue velvet um... <laughs> <laughs> well that's a good film yeah we've never talked about that he's uh... <laughs> He's definitely got a more likable side than yeah. uh, than some still, of his other Still psychotic, but like cartoons. Yeah, psychotic. he's got the kind of like psychotic, kind of angry, but yeah, well, like you said, Costner's character is mm. just uh, a bit of a dick, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll cover it more, but here's some trivia for you guys. If I were to say the names Gene Hackman, James Kahn, Gary Oldman, Samuel L. Jackson, Lawrence Fishburne, and Gary Busey, what do you think they all have in common? Something about 90s films. <laughs> They're all actors. They are all actors, and all six of them turned down the role of the deacon in this film. Wow. So Dennis Hopper was the seventh choice to play this character. I mean... Um, How demeaning is that? I mean, this is off the back of Mario Brothers, but fucking hell, he's better than that. Yeah. He's better than most of those actors. Lawrence Fishburne probably only got the call because he's got fish in his name. Hmm. Um, <laughs> just can't imagine Gary Oldman playing that character. It just doesn't work. I mean, Gary Oldman can do fucking panto villain as well, but I don't know. Dennis Hopper's got a lot more behind him at this stage in his like career. Like we said, you know? Blue Velvet is yeah, a great yeah. film. Like. I think people still have faith in him, even if he does bad films. And he would win a Razzie for his performance in this film. So <laughs> really, this, this film, you know, it's got everything you need in that it has Dennis Hopper giving a Razzie-winning villain performance. Mm. You couldn't ask for more. So there you go. The Deacon is going to be your villain in this film. So as I say, there's a lot of machine guns. Um, I like that the settlement people are responding by firing water cannons. <laughs> I mean, go with what you've got, I guess. Um, but the character, disappointingly titled Helen, um, rescues the mariner from this yellow goo. So we've got the mariner, the deacon, Enola. All right, Helen. Yeah. <laughs> it's not as good, is it? She uh, helps him to escape in that he agrees to take her and Enola. Uh, the girl with the uh, the map to dry land tattooed on her back. It's also a character here called Gregor, who is this sort of crazy Russian guy who uh, has got a hot air balloon and he's able to, to launch it and fly off with a couple of survivors. It does beg the question, if if it's the year 2500 and there is no landmass or countries anymore, why would anyone have a Russian accent? <laughs> How? Where did that come from? <laughs> yeah. I mean, why would anyone have an American accent? You know, you just got to go with it, I guess. Um, and every now and then, people do speak Hindi in this film. Mm. Whenever you see subtitles, they're speaking Hindi. It's the language of the future. So yeah, we get some, we get some cool uh, sequences. I think everyone laughed at this. Kevin Costner doing his fish swimming. 
it's embarrassing. I've got distinct memories of when I saw this film going to the local pool and trying to swim like Kevin Costner, <laughs> uh, i.e. arms to the side, legs very close together, and just flopping them like a uh, like a fish. <laughs> Please say you attempted the, the water exits as well at the end. Uh, yeah, sure. Or a <laughs> dive. So yeah, I was, I was inspired by uh, Kevin Costner's swimming. I'm sure you guys were as well. Um, but he does escape with Helen in illness. And most importantly, the tomato plant. If that was my favourite action scene, then what follows next is my favourite comedy scene. Because <laughs> this is fucking amazing. There's no way that this wasn't meant to be funny. So D- Deacon has lost an eye during this battle. <laughs> so he gets someone to fit him with uh, an artificial eye. But obviously they can only work with the, the scrap material of the future. So I don't know what... What they've used him. <laughs> he asks all his cronies, you know, how does it look? And they're like, oh, it looks great. It looks great. I like it better than your real eye. <laughs> <laughs> you get some zingers in here. Yeah. And uh, a little kid says, it looks like shit. And he's like, well, kids will always be honest with you. <laughs> and then he's given a mirror. It does look like shit. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like shit and it feels like cold shit yeah oh man that was great and he, he still has time to say I'll keep an eye out for <laughs> uh, for that mariner guy now there's, there's sort of a running theme in this film that we we really uh, weren't understanding in that the mariner is sort of um, celibate because he uh, when he refuses to inseminate the teenage girl at the docks they go well how could anyone who'd been at sea for 14 months refuse a young woman? Get him! You know, um, everyone is insisting that you fuck in this film. And <laughs> if you don't, you are a weirdo. And so the Helen character here becomes nude in front of him on the boat and says, just take me. <laughs> and he's like, nah, it's not, not interesting. <laughs> not only is he not interested, he hits her over the head with an oar for some reason. Um, again, what a dickhead, our hero in this film. But we get the impression here that everyone is hunting Enola because everyone believes that the tattoo on her back will lead to dry land. I think I must have gotten a bit annoyed at this point because I just wrote, catamaran scenes are boring. <laughs> because what you get in this film are some really like funny scenes with Dennis Hopper and his, and his panto villains. Mm. Some really great action-packed scenes, but a good 40 minutes or so of just Kevin Costner being moody to this woman and this child on his boat for no apparent reason and it's just like some sort of family drama or something it's a bit tedious what 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 did you guys think of the of the catamaran scenes here with the with the three of these guys yeah it just it's more cases of being a dick (laughs) i still don't know why at one point he pins her down and cuts her hair off (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, it seems completely pointless, but that changes her entire look for the rest of the movie. She's a fucking brute, isn't it? Yeah. I felt like it was getting a bit repetitive. Yeah. I guess he was meant to be like a reluctant father figure to this child. Like, she kept drawing on things with crayons, and he's like, you don't do that, you don't do that, and it's like really mean. He realises at this point that they want Enola because she's got a map, and then Helen finally reveals that, yes, it's a map to dry land, to which he replies, is a myth! No. And he can prove it. By taking Helen under the sea. And they get in a diving bell. And uh, he takes them down to a submerged city. 
I guess it's not really a twist. I guess they've already told us this would be the case. But the effects I thought were quite good for this city. You know, I think it was based on Detroit or something like that, mm. and they've just manipulated it to make it all look underwater. I think it's pretty cool. There's like um, skyscrapers, and then there's like a submarine leaning against one. It was quite well thought out. And it's also revealed that that's where he's been getting the dirt from. He's been picking up dirt from the ocean bed, bringing it back up again because only he can dive that deep because of his gills. So there you go. You find out he's been um, getting his own dirt all along. But while he's been doing that, he's been boarded by uh, Deacon and all his uh, smoker cronies. Kidnapping is a common theme here. Yeah, they kidnap Enola. Gregor the Russian returns at this point with some other survivors from the uh, from the settlement. Now, there's quite a niche thing here. I wouldn't have known what the hell this was if I hadn't read it on IMDb Trivia, but the deacon is back on his ship and he goes up to a picture on the wall and he sort of goes, oh, St. Joe, if only he were here. Mm-hmm. And it's a portrait of a guy called Joseph Hazelwood who was the captain of the Exxon Valdez and the guy responsible for spilling gallons of oil into the ocean uh, in the uh, the Exxon Valdez oil disaster. So in a quite an edgy um, visual gag here, he's, he's somewhat of a hero um, to the Deacon. Uh, the Mariner has somehow been able to infiltrate the Exxon Valdez um, tanker here. Not very stealthy. He plows a jet ski up the ramp and into... <laughs> Like a bloke, like smashing him against a pillar. It's quite um, violent for this film, actually. Yeah. It's quite a cool little um, segment here where um, Enola is giving a monologue where she explains. and It's sort of dialogue that's meant to be for a cooler character, I think. But she's like, you won't see him coming. He's like the knight. He's invisible. He stalks in the shadows. And then like while she's saying this, you see scenes of him like strangling people out of out of nowhere you know, <laughs> and stuff like that and we discover that actually this tanker you're able to stick oars out of the bottom of it and it's a rowboat tanker um that you're able to to row so the mariner finally walks uh walks into the uh, uh, to confront the deacon uh to which the deacon says you must be a total freaking retard <laughs> coming here on your own quote total freaking retard and he's like, oh yeah? <laughs> so he opens a hatch and lights a flare and threatens to drop it into the tanker, thus blowing everyone up. And then he does drop it, but it doesn't explode all at once. It explodes fairly slowly. Hmm. But like every film we review, everything does explode. Yeah. And there is a gunfight. And it gets quite action-y again here. I still don't think it matches the intensity of that first scene because it's, it's not water-based so much, but it's... Um, it's a lot of gunfights, people falling off stuff, as you'd expect, and then the Exxon Valdez sinks into the sea. Deacon crashes his jet ski into some other goons that have jet skis, and a bit of a bit of a disappointing... Uh, Three of them kind of just yeah, meet in the middle. A bit of a disappointing death, I think, uh-huh. for that character. Um, and then they're all able to escape in the balloon, and then they wake up one morning and there's a seagull on the side of the basket... Oh my god, it's dry land! It's dry land! Um, so they get there. Now, no, no one would ever know this while they're reading the trivia, but on Enola's back tattoo, there are longitude and latitude coordinates which match up with the real life coordinates of Mount Everest. Oh. So dry land is actually just the top of Mount Everest. 
so we get through all of this dry land we found dry land thank god for that and then what does this dickhead the mariner do i don't want to stay here i don't like it here i need to be back out there what? It's two hours watching you find dry the man, land. The man had a full character arc and then ruined it right at the end and went back to square one. Now, there are other cuts of this film, apparently, where he explains that he needs to go back out there and f- help other people to find dry land, which would have been a much more reasonable explanation, but they cut it out of the theatrical version, which I guess is what we watched. There's also a cut of this film called The Ulysses Cut, which is a fan-made cut involving all the deleted scenes I think it's about 40 minutes longer Arrow Video just released that on their uh, recent Blu-ray apparently that that's where she says uh, yeah you know you remind me a lot of the Greek legend of Ulysses so the suggestion is from this day on he will be called Ulysses instead <laughs> of the Mariner he will go out and find people and bring them back to dry land that would have been a better ending uh, I think all we got was oh, it's rubbish dry land's rubbish I, I, I want to go back on the on the sea, on a boat. That's how it all ends. Waterworld from 1995. Firstly, Liam, what were your thoughts on this film? So I was quite impressed, again, like we said, about the, the world building and the, the set design. Mm-hmm. And it felt like it was going for a serious tone, but every time it was pulling me in, something ridiculous would happen. <laughs> like a jet ski would really slowly crash into a wall and explode. Or like that guy who gets hit by the jet ski on the ramp. Stuff like that, Just it pulls you out of it. And it's very panto all the time. So it was hard to get invested in any of it because it was so ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like um, the action was very impressive. It was pretty intense, like, well put together action scenes. And like you were saying, like, the sets were quite impressive. They were quite grandiose and quite detailed. I did like the fact that they went to this kind of city under the water thought that was a cool concept but none of the more kind of deeper plot points were explored to enough detail to make this a really interesting film <clears throat> like it didn't go into enough yeah detail about you know kind of it was all stuff blowing up yeah yeah we were probably all left wanting more yeah in terms of the the mythology you know why? Why do certain people dress like this? What What are these? And you might have noticed they mentioned slavers a few times. This were uh, sort of a third group of people, a third like faction in the film that all the sets were constructed for, but were completely destroyed by a hurricane, and they couldn't afford to build them again. Uh-huh. So they just removed that whole element from the film. Apart from every now and then, where people go, oh, the slavers are over there. It's like, yeah, you didn't. Ooh, where are they? Count them no. at all? Yeah. No. So they couldn't. They couldn't do that. But they'd already blown enough money, really. Yeah. Kevin Costner, as you can probably tell from his performance at this time, is one of the biggest ego maniacs uh, <laughs> in Hollywood. I think that comes across, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, I'd like to read you some of the trivia from IMDb, which <laughs> supports this theory. Kevin Costner stayed in an oceanfront villa with a butler, chef, and private swimming pool for four and a half grand per night. Crew members were forced to live in uninsulated condominiums. This led to uh, onset hostility and low morale. <laughs> what a prick. Yeah. <laughs> Further to that, and I think this has been written by someone on the crew, Kevin Costner demanded the VFX crew hide his receding hairline digitally which was not a cheap feat in 1995. <laughs> I didn't notice any tinkering with the hairline, I've got to say. I wasn't, right. lo- I wasn't looking. Well, I was looking, but I didn't see it. And finally, although 
it does say directed by Kevin Reynolds. Halfway through the film, he quit because Ke- uh, Kevin Costner was, quote, backseat driver directing the oh, film. Okay. <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> so he, was, he was telling the director everything to do, basically. Mm. And Reynolds was quoted as saying that Kevin Costner should only star in movies he directs. That way, he can work with his favourite actor and favourite director. <laughs> Ooh. Ouch. Nasty. So they were friends before this film, not so much afterwards. If, if Kevin Costner comes across as a dick, he's just kind of really playing himself. He does um, absolutely nothing in this movie to like deserve to be like that. No, no. Very unlikable. And I think maybe he's trying to do a Mad Max thing, because in the Mad Max films, that was quite an ambiguous character. You didn't know whether he was a good guy or a bad guy. Mm. He's maybe done some things, he's seen some shit, but he's you know he still saves people. I think he maybe overdid that a little bit in just to get the, the audience to just think he's a cock at the end, you know. I don't know, would you believe me if I told you there were 36 drafts of this screenplay? What? I've never heard of such a number. That's ridiculous. By six different writers, including Joss Whedon, who mm. I'd like to think wrote maybe the funnier parts. <laughs> yeah. So there you go, Waterworld, um, most expensive film ever made at that time, 175 million. Did eventually make a profit, but not much. And it would be the decline of Kevin Costner after this. He would never, never get to this level again. It wasn't very well critically received. I've always said it's a pretty good film, not a bad film. I only, I only plug it here a because everyone else thinks it's a bad movie, and it also ties in with the with the band there. But I, um, I've always thought it's quite a good movie. Just Mad Max at sea, a little bloated, poorly acted. Poorly directed, mm. poorly written, but <laughs> some shit blows up at sea, yeah. and Dennis Hopper is fucking hilarious. And there's some good lines in it, yeah, yeah, as usual. So, Mark and Liam, if you had to banish one of these movies to an island where it would have to be turned into a possum, <laughs> or um, preserve one of these films on an island like the mythical dry land and lead everyone to this island because this film's so great. Which film would you banish to become a possum and which film would you lead everyone to because it's so great? Mark. Okay. (laughs) Um, So, the thing about the possum that you said... That's the bad one. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. that one. Um... (laughs) I'd give that to Willow, I think. Yeah. Waterworld can go to the island that you were talking about. Yeah. But why? But why? <laughs> let's let's get into the important detail. I think it was. Um, I had more laughs with this film. I felt yeah. like Dennis Hopper was funny. Genuinely, quite enjoyed some of the action. Quite entertaining to watch. Like the action. I was happy that. with the trade-off. Yeah. <laughs> the sets and everything. Willow bit too fantasy for me even even trying to watch it from the perspective of a bad movie i it just got too kind of ridiculous in the middle mm. i did like warwick davis and there were parts in it that i enjoyed but waterworld stood out a bit more for me um it was a bit crazier had some good lines and stuff so yeah liam which film would you turn into a possum and which film would you lead everyone to well, simply if you're asking me which one I prefer. <laughs> that is what I'm asking, <laughs> yes. Uh, I actually prefer Willow. 
Ooh. Yeah. There's just something about it that they they both shared the same problems, I think, with having a, just a lot of bloated nonsense in the middle. Uh, but there's something about Willow, some kind of 80s fantasy charm. It kind of felt a bit mm-hmm. like Goonies, kind of. Mm. Just, I can't put my finger on the Charm is the only word I could use for it. It just left me with like a bit more of an upbeat attitude after and less like I've just watched a bad movie. Are you more of a, of a fan of the fantasy genre than us, perhaps? Possibly. I've never thought about it, but... I guess so. I, I feel like it, it, it's more of the, the era I like, the kind of Goonies, yeah. Back to the Future style of... Just like ridiculous charm in one character. It was character. a simpler time. Exactly. <laughs> just yeah, yeah. Giving everything good to one character and just letting like them run with Spielberg, it. Spielberg, Amblin films as well. And um, I know you like Back to the Future and Robert Zemeckis films. I do. Robert Zemeckis turned down Willow. He was he was slated to direct it, so I didn't often get disagreement. So I've got the deciding vote here. Hmm. Willow was a favourite of mine as a kid on VHS, but so was Waterworld when it came out. And... I don't know. I think even people that like fantasy could never really admit that it's cooler than something that's post-apocalyptic because post-apocalyptic shit is really cool. <laughs> even the bad post-apocalyptic <laughs> films I think are cool. So I would have to go with Waterworld. A lot more action. The post-apocalyptic setting I always want to see in various different things. And there were a lot of knockoffs of Mad Max, a lot worse than this, which we'll probably do an entirely different episode on because there are loads of them. Like Mad Max was such a profitable and successful film. Yeah, I prefer prefer Waterworld here. Willow for me is, again, too, too much fantasy. So uh, some recommendations. So we've touched on it a few times there. If you liked Waterworld... You've probably already seen Mad Max, but I would recommend you go and watch Mad Max, the whole franchise, particularly Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, and Mad Max Fury Road from a couple of years ago. Those are the best uh, ones, the highlights of that franchise, post-apocalyptic. For Willow, probably looking at stuff, if you want stuff from the 80s, that fantasy, I would say The Princess Bride is really good. Labyrinth. Uh, Labyrinth, yeah, I love Labyrinth, that's great, Uh, from that same time as well dark crystal maybe mm. as well you know dark crystal had a, a great uh, comeback this year and that's a, that's a great puppet based film as is labyrinth as well i would also probably recommend for people that like willow uh, a film called legend liam you might like this or you might have seen this i have seen it you've seen this uh, ridley scott film starring tom cruise and nicole kidman as some sort of elf stuff um but starring tim curry as the devil in this insane prosthetic makeup. I feel like Tim Curry's whole career was just summarised by scaring the shit out of little kids. He did it as Pennywise and he does it here as well as just this devil with massive horns and he's all red and he's got sharp teeth and it's it's, it's pretty cool. It's a bit of a departure for Ridley Scott. Like George Lucas, he went from sci-fi to fantasy. Kind of works uh, as as a pivot. So yeah, maybe those kind of fantasy films... Would also appeal, but there's lots of them in the 80s. You know, Conan the Barbarian and Krull. And... So, uh, this week we did something a little bit different. Usually we ask for feedback on the films, but since we have guests in the studio, uh, we ask you to send in some questions for Destroy the Beast, Find the Baby. So, Mark, I believe you have some of the questions that, uh, that were posed there. Oh, yeah, I've got one from uh, Jesse Violet. On Instagram, it says I still believe Mum's Spaghetti, which is a song from her first EP, yeah, thank you, is a banging song. <laughs> Sounds um, weird otherwise. 
Which is your favourite to play? So, mentioning there, Mom Spaghetti, uh, it's, a, it's a song that we did a video for. I think it's a popular one live, isn't it? What do you think, Liam? Uh, personally, I'd say one of our new songs, Always a Lighthouse. Yeah. It just has such a range of uh, like upbeat pop and then really heavy bits. And it's just quite fast tempo, jumping around. It's a really good mm. kind of like live gig song. It's so in many ways, it's like the mom's spaghetti of this EP, I feel. It kind of is, yeah. yeah. They're kind of... Um, Dynamic. The, so. Yeah, the dichotomy <laughs> yeah. of different genres all blended together. Heavy, heavy, poppy, poppy, heavy. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the type of music we do in a nutshell. Um, we're also shooting a music video for that song very soon as well. Uh, we've also got a question from Richie Oakham. Simply uh, says... How come George is so fucking cool? <laughs> George being our drummer, yeah, uh, for listeners, not not here to answer for his crimes. Um, I think George is so fucking cool mainly because he always wears flip flops. That's a good answer. He got married this summer in flip flops. That's pretty cool. Waistcoat, trousers, dressed up to the nines, flip flops. So <laughs> I think that's how he maintains his cool. Do you I agree? Think he's got a punk attitude <laughs> towards flip flops, definitely. No one will stop him wearing what he wants. Yeah. Flip flops not usually associated with punk rock, but but they are now, I think. Yeah. <laughs> not great drumming shoes, but it <laughs> no. makes it work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got some general questions for each of you. Really, yeah. From me. So we've talked about watery worlds and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is a kind it's of a radio uh, link <laughs> <laughs> you're uh, you're going to be taking us into a bit of a watery world with your uh, with your new ep i believe so you said that all the all the songs on the ep are nautical related yes that's um, true would you say it's a concept ep is there a can you tell us about the story yeah unfolds? there is there is a loose concept. I mean, I've always tried to not necessarily write all of the songs with a concept in mind, but try and sort of stitch it together after the fact and cobble together some sort of concept or theme for the EP, even if it's just the artwork and the videos and and, and stuff like that. So I've always been a big fan of uh, Coheed and Cambria, hmm. uh, who are um, not very heavy band quite a proggy band but they also do a similar stuff to us pop punk type stuff and they they base all of their songs off of a comic book that the singer wrote himself so uh, i've always thought that was a great idea and not something that should be limited to like ridiculous prog rock bands so yeah our first ep was themed around the apocalypse and i tried to come up with a story around that <laughs> which not many people know about but it involved a giant sort of cybernetic gorilla um, we we played sort of um, government secret agents and uh, yeah, as far as that being reflected in the songs, not so much. But on this EP, we try to reflect more of the theme in the song. So yeah, there is lots of um, uh, underwater or watery metaphors and also quite a lot of parallel universe stuff with me being a big fan of Donnie Darko and Lost and that sort of stuff. So so obviously you're going to be playing some gigs to uh, promote the new EP. Yes. Um, a lot of your gigs are sort of around the <laughs> Bristol area where you're based. Yep. Um, do you have any favourite venues that you played in? What's your, if you had to choose one that you really like going back to? I would say the Louisiana in Bristol is one of my favourites. funny you say that. Do you reckon? <laughs> so we are playing there on the 12th of November, is that right? We are indeed. Yeah. It just seems like a... It's kind of like our, our home venue, it kind of feels like. So it's, it felt like the right place to 
released the EP. Mm. They're always good to us there, and it's <clears> a it's like it's a great venue for such a small little hidden away place, mm. and it mm. always has a like a great vibe to it and great people. Yeah, so we will be playing there on um, the twelfth of November. Uh, anyone who is listening to this in Bristol. A lot of our listeners are in America, so it won't mean anything to you unless you're probably living in Louisiana and think, "Where is this place?" <laughs> um, this is a this is a venue in Bristol, England. But yeah, because our EP comes out on the Friday the eighth. We're going to play the release show on the Tuesday the twelfth. So, I would agree. Louisiana is is a great venue. I like the Fleece as well. Um, these are venues I just go to for other people's gigs as well. I've always wanted to play the Thecla though. That's a, that's a boat. In Bristol, mm. that would be very Waterworld. Yes. That fits yes. well. Oh, that'd be great, actually. Yeah, I never really thought about that. Um, even when I go and see like American bands that play there, they often they go, "Fucking hell, we're on a boat." Like, <laughs> this has never happened in our career. Like we've never played on a boat, so that's quite unique. Just in terms of your influences, what bands or artists would you say inspired Liam you to play bass and Ash? Maybe from a vocal perspective as well. I think growing up, I had like pretty generic pop punk, like Green Day, New Found Glory, Sum 41. So those were the kind of bands that got me into music. Mm-hmm. It was also games as well got me into music. So like uh, the Tony Hawk's games and Guitar Hero. Those two games yes. like completely changed <clears throat> my music taste from Black Eyed Peas and Justin Timberlake <laughs> to uh, <laughs> what I like now. So thank God for Tony Hawk's. <laughs> Every generation has Tony Hawks. It's weird, you know. Even 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 you being a bit younger than us, about we you just came along at a perfect. We time. have me and Mark have the same thing. Tony Hawks as well. So yeah, yeah. I, I come at it from a less of a pop punk kind of a, a approach, more of a sort of a post hardcore. So vocally, uh, I sort of tried to base my myself on uh, Jamie Lenman uh, from Reuben and, and from his solo works, uh, Dustin Kensrue from Thrice. Uh, is one of my favourite vocalists as well. Uh, I do also play guitar, not in this band, but I do work with our guitarist on on some riffs and stuff. So chunky riffs, mm. chunky sort of uh, bouncy riffs, and our guitarist Dan is uh, is the the noodle expert. He can he never met a noodle he didn't like. <laughs> he can you give him a little chunky riff and he'll he'll put some massively complicated uh, lead noodly part on the top and that's 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 why we love him so so who came up with the logo and the artwork can you tell me any more about that yeah so the logo was uh one of my creations so i actually run uh like a design company called raise anchor look me up if you want some work uh so i came up with the logo just it's such a hard band name to to fit into something that looks visually pleasing so (laughs) There was a lot of sketching, doodling for months to come up with it, but we got this one now, which works great. It's uh, really easy to kind of change the the theme and the colours of it, and it fits nicely with everything. Mm. So we obviously had some help with the the actual artwork for the EP. Mm-hmm. So we've got an artist to do that, which looks great. Yeah. But things like uh, the logo and T-shirt designs, and the lyric videos and stuff like that, I managed to to do myself. And people listening you're probably looking at our logo as we speak that was also designed by liam that was race anchor designs did the schlock tactics splattery green logo depending on what you're looking at it could be on a purple background or a city background or something like that but the uh, the iconic um schlock tactics splatter logo was also done by liam so we definitely look up raise anchor he'll sort you out with some designs what a ranker 
that is your movie blog, as you mentioned. Um, what are you doing with that at the moment? What did you review last? What have you got coming up here over on Wataranka? So, yeah, I just tried to keep up with the latest movies. So the last big one I watched was The Joker, which was great, but obviously a bunch of terrible Netflix films constantly. Mm. No idea what the next one will be. Keeps but you busy. Yeah. <laughs> The amount of time I've wasted yeah. into Netflix films. You mentioned a terrible film that you had to watch recently. What was oh, that? Malibu something? Malibu Rescue on uh, on Netflix. What is that? Uh, it's just a terrible like teen gets sent to the beach for a summer because he was bad at home and learns to be a lifeguard and absolutely nothing happens in an hour twenty minutes. Wow. <laughs> So we can uh, we can find you uh, your website, your Instagram to read. Find these? me at Wataranka on Instagram, it's where I post mainly all of my stuff, and there's a link to the website if you want to go deeper into my uh, crazy long lists. And uh, for non-English people, that's what a ranker, which is a play on the word wanker, <laughs> a popular English insult. Uh, <laughs> so yeah go and check out Liam's reviews I, I do and um, it, it's rare that we actually watch the same films that we can talk <laughs> about but uh, yeah I'm sure we'll, we'll get him back on in the future as Liam mentioned there uh, he ends up having to watch um, all sorts of shitty Netflix originals and so do I sometimes mm-hmm. uh, don't forget we have our uh, sister show Short Sharp Schlocks over on the YouTube channel. That's YouTube exclusive. Uh, those are reviews of about six or seven minutes where I review on my own just uh, new uh, current films, whether they be good, bad, or otherwise. But as Liam will attest, usually bad. Netflix originals are uh, quite popular for that as well. Uh, my last review was It Chapter 2, which I was not a fan of. Have you seen that, Liam? I have, yeah. What do you think? Very mediocre. Ooh, compared yeah. to the last one I think you're being generous so go and check out my uh, Short Sharp Schlocks review on that and I'm sure next up will be some sort of Netflix original horror tripe on there as well so please do subscribe to the show we release uh, one or two episodes a month and every time we do you will be the first to know leave us a positive review on iTunes if you wouldn't mind it does help the show a lot uh, yeah that has been another episode of Schlock Tactics our biggest episode ever mm. thank you very much to Liam of Wataranka thank you to Ash and Liam of Destroy the Beast Find the Baby oh yeah thank you again thank you to Mark as always thank you very much and please do stay tuned as we will now be playing the world exclusive the first time anyone has ever heard the title track of the new EP from Destroy the Beast Find the Baby Dry Land is a Myth and we will see you next time Goodbye! Bye. Bye.